Shut up and sit down. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The only thing we have to say is... Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I'm speaking with myself, number one, because I have a very good brain and I've said a lot of things. We have fancy equipment now. <laughs> you can talk. <laughs> We're not muted, are we? We're not muted anymore. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> Barstool Politics Ooh. with fancy microphones and a mixer. Sorry, I'm 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 playing with this still. <laughs> well, while you're doing that, Nick, uh, Phil, how are you doing? I'm great. And we're also uh, joined once again this week by uh, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, Professor of Business Law, to come back and uh, help us uh, understand all the legal ramifications of everything that's going on in the world. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to be here again. Yeah. Uh, busy week. Uh, nukes and Nazis, right? Uh, yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, August is. Night- so- supposed to be a quiet month for politics everybody's on vacation nothing's going on uh you know most podcasts are just doing reruns and we're talking about nuclear war and nazis uh it's a (laughs) it's a strange time phil it's like we're back in the 40s again it does it feels like that russia nuclear weapons nazis All right, so our plan for today is we're going to talk, obviously, about Charlottesville. We'll start there, and then we'll do some time on North Korea. Uh, and then the second half of the show, we'll really dive into some of the legal questions dealing with the Mueller investigation and uh, preview some of the uh, big upcoming uh, Supreme Court cases. So, Still doing speed rounds, correct? Yes, yeah, we'll do five minutes on each of the questions. So the, okay. people, the, the fans love speed rounds. So. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> we had more listeners last week than we have had, I think, of any other episode, right, I think- within... Best episode time. ever. People yeah. like us in smaller doses. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, if you, I don't go ahead. I don't know if it's going to come across in the actual podcast, but you guys sound fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if you like the way we sound and you like our speed rounds and the podcast, make sure to rate us on iTunes, uh, like our Facebook page. Uh, we're at Barstool Politics. Uh, go to our Twitter account at uh, Barstool Paul. Uh, you can find all of our beer selections on the Untapped app. Uh, that you can download uh, if you have a question or beer suggestion or just want to leave a nice note because we like nice things. Um, uh, send it to our email address, uh, barstoolpolitics at yahoo.com. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll either get back to you on the show or in email form or something yeah. in, in between. Nazis? Let's start with Nazis, yes. So, uh, I don't think we need to go. I think everybody probably knows what happened uh, this weekend. Uh, the, you know, there was a, a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Um, uh, alt-right individuals, the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, this big group that was uh, protesting the removal of, uh, was, was it Lee? Who was, who was being? General, yeah. General Lee, okay. Uh, so they showed up in mass numbers. You had uh, opposition groups also showing up. Uh, Friday night Larger there was numbers. yes, uh, and uh, Saturday, Friday night was the uh, the walk with the tiki torches, the pottery barn tiki torches. <laughs> all somebody had to do was spill one of those on someone, and <laughs> it, it would have over. been over. So uh, Friday night, and then Saturday was uh, was another rally, and that's the one that even before the rally began broke out into violence, uh, and obviously the woman was killed when a individual was part of the the group uh, drove his car into it. So I mean, really kind of a 
shocking visuals. It was uh, horrible. Yeah, for what, what happened. Uh, and then, of course, you know, maybe the biggest story is how the president reacted and then the reaction to the president's reaction. So uh, where do you guys want to start? I'll save my comments for later. Okay. <laughs> Phil, I mean, do you want to start us off, Phil? Uh, sure. I mean, there, so there's so many different elements to this that we could pick apart or talk about, right? I mean, there's yeah. the there's the issue of free speech and protests. There's the issue of mm-hmm. uh, Nazis and Nazi sympathizers and and the, the optics of seeing people with torches marching, like very remnant of uh, very reminiscent of of you know old Klan rallies. And I that was I think. I would assume to some extent um, intentional. So I, I think I would like to talk about the big sort of the large scale issues about freedom of speech and assembly and all of that. But maybe we could start by talking a little bit about the politics of Trump and then step sure. back and talk about the bigger issues. So um, the, the timeline with Trump's response to this was that initially there wasn't a response. So Trump uh, didn't say anything so the violence happened on Saturday, and he didn't. Was it Sunday before he came out with it, or did he come out? I he think came he out said with something Saturday. Yeah, he came yeah. out with a statement on Saturday, and that was the infamous statement in which he condemned violence on all and sides. Then sort of paused on, on many sides. On all sides. Yeah. On many sides. Yeah, on many sides, um, which led to massive backlash uh, from all across the political spectrum. Lots of really, I saw Tom Cotton was like who I think of as you know diehard conservative who was really coming down hard on that. And then so he came out, I guess, Sunday or Monday, yesterday, with a more clear statement about condemning hate and racism and how that's wrong. And, and the but particular almost, groups, right? The white supremacist yes. groups, like, which was missing in the first group, yeah. Or the first but message. It's, it's almost like he was chafing to like that, that, that. He was like kind of pissed that he had to make that statement. Oh, yeah. Because today he tweeted about how the fake news isn't pleased even after he gave another statement and that they're basically they're the real enemy not not neo-nazis but the media and then today he took questions at this uh i don't remember what kind of meeting it was but he took questions and they very quickly went off the rail into him into him aggressively defending these sort of alt-right groups against the alt-left and um, yeah, it, it, it <laughs> yeah, he came back to the blame on both sides. Uh, he said, this was his comment today, quote, many of those people were there to protect uh, the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. Uh, this week, it's Robert Lee. This next week, it's Stonewall Jackson. Is it George Washington next? Uh, I've condemned neo-Nazis. Not all those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. I mean, so he, he returned and kind of doubled down on his comments on Saturday, which caused a lot of the uproar. The, the 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 comments he made today were entirely essentially in defense of the protesters with no condemnation whatsoever and i i, I mean i so i this I don't is necessarily I, know if he thought that though i mean that's what it definitely came off as i don't think he necessarily it was a a, a um a rebuke of of the left that he didn't get to say the first time which he clearly wanted to so i so I mean, there's there there. This is where you have all these different issues entangled, and I know how much <laughs> you get irritated by protesters and by like <laughs> the radical left, Nick. But let, let's take that away for a second and okay. just talk about the fact that you had a Nazi rally, right? And and if 
like I this is where we can get to the big issues of free speech and whatnot. There, there's all sorts of, you know, I, I there's a big debate to be had about, you know, who, where where the limits are of that and, you know, sh how far should we let people take these sorts of protests? But when you're president of the United States, right, and there's a Nazi rally that turns violent and someone ends up dead at the hands of a neo-Nazi, it, it shouldn't be hard. You don't have to condemn free speech speech or protest, you just come out and say, these groups are not what we stand for. And today, the optics were Trump standing there essentially defending them on essentially sort of the right to free speech, but not in any sort of intellectual way, in a, in a way that felt, you know, like, I don't know, it was it was bizarre to watch that video, I thought. It, it was, yeah. Tom, do you want to? <laughs> I'm going to admit that I didn't see the video. In fact, I haven't physically seen him talk about this. Uh, at all. I, I've heard some of it quoted. Um, and I, I'm with you, Phil. I just, this seems like a no brainer. Um, but I, I think the president, uh, we have turned the presidency into a cult. Hmm. And we care far too much about what this guy and his predecessors for the recent past say. Mm -hmm. uh, he's inarticulate. Uh, he doesn't, to go back to the intro, in my judgment, have a good brain. Uh, but, but because we've made the presidency uh, a sort of central thing to our culture, it elevates everything the person in that office says. Now, clearly that uh, bestows on him a greater responsibility to be responsible with what he does say. But boy, would I like to dial back worrying about every utterance from every president, yeah. frankly, from every politician. Agreed. Uh, <clears throat> Go ahead, Phil. Go ahead. I 100% I, I, I agree with you. I think I think you're you're right in that we put too much emphasis on it, but at the same time, it is where we are. Mm -hmm. um, and so you see when Absolutely. he said things, when he equivocated on condemning yeah. the groups on Saturday, yeah. you saw a lot of these right, far right, you know, alt-right white nationalist people in groups, Richard Spencer, for instance, who on Twitter were basically like holding up his statement as evidence of his approval or his, you know, that they were like rejoicing in the fact that he condemned the alt left and not, and not them. Mm -hmm. And so, and then now I saw, I, so I, I don't, I haven't read that much about it, but I know this coming weekend, I think there's another uh, sort of white supremacist rally in Boston. Um, I, I think there's like nine others that are happening in the next couple of weeks. And so um I, I hate that his words have so much power, but it's yeah. at the same time because they do, it, it's concerning, right? I mean, I think Absolutely. I think the the white nationalist movement is is um, I, I mean they're they they seem to be taking to be gathering energy from this, right? I think both from the pause. I mean, you saw this. You know, this was uh, Fox News had this uh, from a neo Nazi website. Uh, quote, Trump comments were good. He didn't attack us. When asked to condemn, he just walked out of the room. Really, really good. God bless him, right? And so um, they're reacting in a way that they feel emboldened by this. I, hmm. And so the question is, I think you're right. Trump has to know that in this office it has become this. You have to be the voice of the country, whether or not you know that's good or bad. He is. And his hesitation on this is, is telling. Uh, and, and again, I don't know whether he's... I don't. I don't know if, we, if he sympathizes with these groups or whether he's just reluctant to admit that he was wrong, like that his first statement should have come out and condemned uh, the neo-Nazi groups. I mean, because again, like you said, all the Republicans were ahead of the Democrats on this in terms of condemning the Nazis. This is like a softball. You know, you just, you go after them. Yeah, it's not hard to condemn Nazis, or at least it shouldn't be. Yeah, no, this is an <laughs> right. easy one, right? You just you well, go after them and you move on. Even beyond the, like, the po politics of it, just from a personal side, right? Like, so he, that, I saw somebody 
claiming that he either uh, he either agrees, right? So he's either a racist himself or he's afraid to condemn racists that he'll, you know, he'll lose racist followers and saying stuff. Regardless, like even just get rid of all the political crap and just think on a personal level, right? If I found for whatever reason that like, you know, the Aryan nation or the KKK or whatever was like holding me up for some reason. And congratulations, Phil. Like, yeah. yeah. I would do whatever I could as quick as I could to to make clear that that was not what I stood for, right? Yeah. And that that's just yeah. at a personal like forget the politics of it. Like it's just it's just bizarre that he doesn't seem to have a problem with the fact that these people <laughs> idolize him. Mm-hmm. And I, I get that there, you know, you we can talk about Antifa and that there's that whole conversation that there is violence on the left, and I think that's an important conversation to be had, but maybe not immediately, right? And I think you saw that even from. You know, individuals like Bill Kristol, who I'm not usually a big fan of, but his point was that, you know, when you've got Nazi violence, that's where you start. You condemn that. And then at a later time, you can have a more thoughtful conversation about the violence on both sides of the political spectrum. And, you know, where is it coming from and who's really driving this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think from a, a political perspective, yeah, it's, it's toxic to do something like that at this current moment for people like us and the general public, it is a conversation that probably does need to happen on a consistent basis. I, I don't know, like I, I think what happened was absolutely horrible and there's no justifying the, the actions, especially of the, the one lunatic, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think the, the understanding of the mindset of the people who were there um, whether they were part of the neo-Nazi or white supremacist groups, or if they were simply there to protest the potential taking down of a Confederate statue, I think there's not a lot of understanding of where where those people are coming from. And the other, I think, to build off of that, his many sides comment has appeal to his base, yeah, who who thinks that what happens is that the right always gets blamed for the violence, mm-hmm. uh, and here's somebody who's finally saying that it's more complicated to that. So there is certainly an audience for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy into the moral equivalence in this circumstance, but you're right to say that there is certainly people who feel that way. This is why I I kind of question the just the narrative that's that's put out there now it wasn't necessarily like let's get this out of the way in the in the very beginning it was a neo-nazi rally with a fairly large amount larger than we've seen in a very significant amount of time but that was realistically probably the majority of them in a five-state radius Mm -hmm. i would gather um completely outnumbered by antifa and progressive counter-protesters but I lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> Nazis will do that to you. Nazis, God, Nazis. <laughs> ah, um, they're all all of the people within those white supremacist groups were all armed. No one got shot. No one even got arrested, as far as I know. The only act of violence was the one lunatic. I, as I far think there as were I quite. A, my impression is there were quite a few arrests. There were police officers who were. Uh, assaulted by people who were there. I think it was it was not. I mean, it got to the point where the they shut it down and declared a state of emergency. I mean, I think it was it was more than just the one uh, incident with the car. Okay, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm wrong on that, but I, I mean, I think that the I think the level of violence from that particular group could have been much worse, considering the 
amount of firepower that was there and the temperatures that were that were flaring at the time. Which actually was scary when you saw some of the, the still shots and the videos of how armed both groups were, right? right. I mean, so you oh, had, yeah, the left uh, was, yeah, it's rocks and, and knives and... Right, and, and you have... Various blunt objects. Right, no, no, it's, uh, and that's, I don't know, it's it's scary that that is now in the open. And, and we shouldn't pretend that those white supremacist groups, white supremacist groups haven't been around a long time. But, they certainly oh, yeah. have. Absolutely. Uh, it feels like we're going down the road, though, of like, of like what a the whole what about is right, stuff, right? True. Like Antifa is stupid, right? Like they're not they're not. I don't know. You shouldn't go like arm yourself with sticks and be prepared to physically assault people who are demonstrating, but not like Nazis, like people who were chanting blood and soil and hiling Hitler showed up with torches in mass, right? So we can say that what Antifa Antifa did was was dumb, but it wasn't just. Them. There were like groups of pastors who were locked arms and singing hymns and peacefully demonstrating and trying to, you know, like they were very much a part of it. So, so part Completely of the agree. left was dumb and, and, you know, we should condemn them. But let's like, I don't, it doesn't, I don't, I, it feels totally wrong to then equate them, yes. right? There's the issue of turning violent at protests, but there's the, the, I don't, I, the, it, yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact that this was started as a, essentially a, a clan rally is is you know the, yeah. the main point it this, feels like this is one of those situations where yeah you absolutely should have gotten in the face of these pieces of shit and told them exactly what you think the issue that i have with it is that they take a narrative like this and then anyone who has a conservative viewpoint is now labeled a nazi like I, yeah I, I mean realistically there haven't been have you seen any other like large-scale neo-Nazi rallies that were Antifa has showed up and this has happened. Normally, it's people that have conservative viewpoints or, you know, members of the alt-right or alt-light or whatever the hell you want to call them, but it's never gotten to this point. But they're all Nazis. So where is that dividing line? And who is who is an actual Nazi and who's someone who just doesn't agree with your viewpoint? But don't you think the fact that the so many of Republicans and the right were out condemning this early on makes that distinction fairly clear, right? I mm, uh, to some extent, but uh, so, I, I, go ahead. You you are one hundred percent right in that the the overuse of Nazi is is a major problem because when you accuse everyone who's conservative of being a Nazi, the word loses its its power, right? right? In this case, there's it shouldn't be any debate, right? I mean, they were they they were chanting Nazi slogans, they were right. hailing Hitler, they were, you know, espousing sort of, you know, they were chanting things about, uh, uh, I mean, specifically about Jews. I mean, th th this yeah. was like this was literally a Nazi rally. I agree. Um, and so, yeah, but you're you're exactly right. It, that's that's the reason why when you resort to Hitler and Nazi accusations every time someone is more conservative than you want, right? the word loses its power. Right? Yeah, and you've, I, they've pretty much been given, or at least they've given themselves carte blanche to, now that they, was it Durham, where they tore the other Confederate statue down? That was today, right? Judiciously? Yes. Uh, I, actually, I'm not sure where it was, but yes, there was another think, attack. Yeah, yeah, it was in Durham. Um, just tore it down in the middle of the day, uh, and they're apparently, quote-unquote, going to pursue felony charges against the people if they can find them, which I don't think that will ever happen. But it's, it's this thing where my perspective is right, so we need, there's, there's a mandate now to espouse that belief. And if, if that means, you know, tearing down every single 
memorial uh, uh, from the Confederacy that you can, which we can have that debate again if you want. I, I, like that mob mentality in that situation does not necessarily make sense to me as a reaction to what happened. Yeah, to Bill's point on, on this question of uh, equivalence, I, I'm kind of interested. It, it is easy to condemn the Nazis. I don't mean, and we should do that. And I think one of the ways that we distinguish them from the other side is we know what their end game is. Mm -hmm. It is to say, uh, blacks, Jews, and Catholics are second-class citizens, and they should go home. What's interesting to me is to ask the question: What's the other side's end game? Uh, and I, this is the place where it dovetails a bit with speech. And mm -hmm. I wonder what, uh, and I, I realize I'm aggregating a huge range of people with a huge range of perspectives when I say the other side, but um, I'm not clear on what any of them have as an end game. I know that lots of them carried signs saying no free speech for fascists. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard repeatedly you know, sort of a, uh, a repeating of this business that Howard Dean started, that the First Amendment doesn't cover hate speech, which of course is ludicrous. Uh, I, if the end game is to shut down the speech of those with whom this group disagrees, uh, I'd condemn that end game. Hmm. Uh, it is certainly, uh, you worry about equivalence, uh, I don't want to equate that with Nazism, but listen, an element of fascism is authoritarianism, right. and it is deciding what people can say and what people can think. And there's an irony in uh, uh, taking free speech from fascists in a way that is, and I want to be very careful about using the word, that has some elements of fascism about it. Mm -hmm. is, is, that a, is that a reasonable way yeah. to say it? Yeah. yeah. And to me, it's, it seems like allowing this group, allowing these the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, to have their platform this week was revealing, right? So the idea is if you have true free speech, the the merits of different arguments reveal themselves. So right when you've got these groups out there and they're they're out with their tiki torches and they're they're saying, you know, these anti-Semitic and all their comments, like their ignorance is revealed, right? You don't have to shut them up, right? This this is kind of the point, or it should be. Right. Um, but again, that's why the president's comments matter in terms of this broader conversation about you know, what speech is, all speech is tolerable, but we can condemn that, right? And the president's voice is important there. Yeah, um, right. it, it would have been interesting to see to, to what, I mean, I think part of the sort of renewed energy around this movement is from a perception that Donald Trump has their back, right? Supports yes. them in some way. And so a, a, a true quick condemnation, it would have been interesting to see what sort of effect that would have had mm -hmm. on the movement. I don't. These people aren't going to instantly. You know, if if you're if you're a, a Klan sympathizer and Trump comes out and condemns you, you're not going to suddenly, you know, view all people as equal. But it it might make you less bold about yes. <laughs> marching on a college campus with a tiki torch, right? right, right. So <laughs> another but, important. But element. I'm asking a, a table full of uh, people to the left of center. What do you think the end game is of those on the left? Yeah, it it it, it seems to me that it is not. Uh, sort of the civil rights movement of the 60s nope. that was asking for a colorblind society uh, and a community of equals. It seems to me it's about closing off areas of thought, closing off areas of speech, and in many ways honoring this set of tribes we've produced in America. Uh, and I have to tell you, this is a really troubling part of this entire thing to me. And I mean by entire thing, yep. not just Charlotte, but yeah. Everything Charlottesville that's that's happened over the past several years. I'm so glad when I, he's here. <laughs> no, I, I 
I agree with you. I I think there's a danger in in casting the right as a as a monolith. I mean, the left as a monolithic entity, right? So like, absolutely. Sh- Charlottesville is a good example, and and I don't I don't know all the details, but from my reading and from listening to some reports, you had um, a African American church that had essentially a civil rights type movement who went out. Um, trained in nonviolent protests. They locked arms. They sang hymns. Mm-hmm. It was about, you know, confronting a group that was chanting about hate with essentially, you know, we're going to go out there and, and sing about love and all of that. Then you have like the Antifa movement, right? Who yeah. I think does have this more of uh, this idea of there are certain things that are acceptable and things that are not. And if you think something that we deem unacceptable, then, then yeah, I mean, and, and that does in fact, I think take on some uh, it, it takes on fascist tendencies, yeah, and I and I think that's that's concerning. It's, it's I mean, it's the debate, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but but so is a fidelity to the idea that we're going to dice up society based almost entirely on uh, external identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm trying to take a more macro view here. That yeah. is, you know, what are we talking about? Big picture uh, in terms of America's future. Uh, this is a little window into the way lots of different groups think. I suspect we could find people on the other side of the spectrum who were very much like uh, the pastors and churchgoers that were there uh, for this event, saying, how do we build a community that cherishes one another, yeah. irrespective of what we look like or what we believe or what we think? And again, I'm please don't hear me saying yeah. Nazis are okay. Uh, I'm looking for how do we find that vast middle, uh, and I think it's vast. I, I think these polls are relatively small numbers of people that, because they're newsworthy, uh, maybe they aren't, get uh, a disproportionate share of our attention. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a that's really well said, and I, I the dominant narrative for this weekend certainly was the Nazis, but it is a this was a window into the society as a whole, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, and sure. absolutely, so I think that that's why it's so it's having such a big impact. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, we probably need to move on to our second topic, but before we do so, I might ask if Tom would open his uh, open and, and name. So normally we're drinking uh, commercial beers, but Tom is actually a brewer, so. He brought a beer, and maybe you can ex- you explain it, and then we'll sample. All right. Uh, I'm a lover of uh, darker, uh, maltier beers, and uh, was at a brewery in Oak Park, which makes a fabulous version of something called a Baltic Porter, uh, which is at the uh, maltier, high alcohol level, uh, or end of the spectrum in terms of that uh, style. So I brewed one. Uh, it's gotten pretty good reviews. We'll, we'll see what happens at this table. Now, because it's a Baltic porter, it's appropriately called, given the current uh, political universe, piss on Putin. Uh, I, I recognize the difficulties of using piss in the same sentence with a beer I'm going to pour, but it was just too irresistible. So here it is. I will pass my glass yeah. over. Yeah. All right. And so our, our second topic. So we've talked Nazis. Now I think it's time to talk nukes. Uh, and in some ways, the Nazi narrative was so uh, significant that North Korea has drifted a little bit in the last couple of days. But this is still a, a tremendously important issue. Uh, last week, we talked about fire and fury, Trump's comments. Uh, and this week, we moved on to locked and loaded. Uh, and uh, so I guess the question is where we are at and uh, what we're thinking about how significant uh, the situation is. I mean, do we really need Guam at this point? Oh, that's right. I forgot. You're right. So, so uh, the, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, threatened after locked and loaded to uh, launch some missiles in the direction of Guam. And 
uh, Trump uh, is going to defend Guam and, and thinks the, I don't know, who's the, the leader of Guam? I don't know if it was a governor or whatever is going to be really famous after all this. So, <laughs> uh, Phil, what, do you, what are you thinking about North Korea? Are you worried? So in a, in a strange turn of events and, and a quote that hopefully won't get taken out of context too much is that uh, uh, in, in this sense, I was grateful for Nazis this week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Mine's like, never before like, uttered in human history. We may have to right. we may have to cut that, that into great. our uh, into no, our no, intro. We're gonna isolate that. <laughs> yeah, that's going right so, on the soundboard. Um, and what I mean by that is that the as the rhetoric kept escalating last week, it it started to freak me out a little bit. Um, and I I, I don't remember if we talked about this or not, but really I, I think what we needed was some sort of distraction to take Trump's mind off of North Korea and this whole. Charlottesville thing has sort of done that and you've seen the tensions uh, sort of decrease just in the couple of days since sort of Trump's attention has turned from North Korea to this other issue um, so yeah I mean I I feel le I feel like you know if you have some sort of dial of how how tense the situation was with North Korea it was ratcheting up and it's I think it started falling back I mean it's not going anywhere right the the, the problem is here to stay but I think not not only was it, it was, I think, exclusively distracting Trump, because everybody else in the administration, Mattis and Tillerson, were pushing for diplomacy. It was, it was Trump himself who was getting worked up by this, and this moved him another direction. For me, what most telling was this last week, North Korea released a statement uh, talking about Trump and his behavior. And this is what they said about Trump. Quote, sound dialogue is not possible with such a guy bereft of reason. Uh, Right. So when North Korea is looking at your leader saying like this guy, we, we just can't. He's he's too crazy. Nick. Yes. Uh, so, but, <laughs> well, look, they probably bought that uh, line from a Madison Avenue PR firm. Right, right. You know, sort yes. of on the payroll. Come on. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I do think it, it allowed for a de-escalation in the sense that Trump wasn't directly involved in all of this. And both Mattis and Tillerson wrote uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week talking about diplomacy. Uh, and it was I think that was a significant development. Mm -hmm. Did no. we lose Phil? Phil's frozen for a second. He'll be back. Um, okay, there you go. There, you're back, <laughs> Phil. <laughs> you hear me? I so, uh, can I... I have a little... I'll make this a very quick story. I did an interview with local radio this week. Um, and about North Korea and the guy asked me a series of questions about nuclear weapons in North Korea and then he asked a question about when you have a leader who is um, unstable and you know mentally volatile and unpredictable and sort of lashes out and likes to use harsh language and and um, has sort of authoritarian tendencies like what checks are there on to prevent him from launching a nuclear weapon and I had to really, because this is on local radio, I had to really <laughs> pause to figure out whether he was talking about Trump or Kim Jong-un. Yeah. <laughs> I found it sort of disturbing. Uh-huh. Anyway. There are, there I, are. I started, I started to respond about Trump, and then he pointed out that he meant Kim Jong-un, so who knows. <laughs> Save. Well, and I, I am reassured. I think I'm, you know, with Mattis and Tillerson, both of them have shifted back to a more conventional deterrence framework. And uh, so I, I'm feeling better now than I was maybe three or four days ago. But this is still it's still a significant situation and it's not going to go away. And if the United States, if the U.S. position is still that we want those nuclear missiles and, and everything removed, North Korea is not going to negotiate about that. That's that's a non-starter. So the question is, is there any room for dialogue? 
And if not, where does that leave U.S. foreign policy? Well, so what's happened in the past week? So there was or there were reports that there was a U.S. diplomat who was doing back-channel diplomacy with the North Korean regime, yes. correct? We heard that. Yep. Uh, there was a statement coming from North Korea that said they were going to wait to see what Trump's next move was before doing anything with their plan to attack Guam, yes. which is hilarious. Uh, and then the administration coming out and saying, or, or um, uh, tampering down the hysteria of possible nuclear war with yeah. North Korea. So I, I would it, say in addition to that, there was some fear that Trump was going to crack down on China with some trade regulations, right. and he softened on that and, mm -hmm. and gave a statement yesterday in which it really wasn't... Uh, See, you just wait a week, and it calms down a little bit. But we and had there's some other horrific shit that takes its place. It, it's it, fine. It, it had to be Nazis, Nick. That's right. where we had to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not Space there, Nazis next. There, you know, when I heard another, this one on the topic list, I was reminded that the first time I did this podcast, I was fishing for some plausible reason to be optimistic mm -hmm. uh, about the Trump administration. And, and my thought then and hope then was that economic diplomacy might replace, you know, sort of the, the diplomatic dance that I think is uh, often ineffective and for show. And I'm wondering if this won't turn out to be a place where we either find out if that's possible or not. Because while you talk about the language relative to the Chinese in sort of threatening ways, um, they are clearly the solution. Mm -hmm. They're the only solution. Right. Uh, war isn't. Uh, everybody agrees about that. Direct dialogue with North Korea is not going to happen. Um, but China controls that country. Uh, most of their uh, imports, North Korea that is, come from China, uh, including everything that makes their power grid work, yes. uh, or virtually everything. So one wonders if this might not be a place where we get a test case of uh, can we bring China to, uh, at least to the table, by more seriously and aggressively suggesting that the world of trade is ours, uh, not theirs, uh, yeah. despite how many there are. The banking universe is a perfect example. Sure. Um, and see if we can't push them along. I don't think publicly, God knows I don't think by tweets or right. <laughs> uh, you know, public pronouncements, but uh, maybe this is the place. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm still excessively optimistic <laughs> about just one possible dimension uh, where things will go well here. But maybe this is it. I don't know. I, I would agree with that if Trump makes a, a shift. And there's there's all sorts of talk in the last couple of days that Bannon may be on his way out. And and I think if that happens, if, if Bannon, Stephen Miller, if, uh, if the new uh, chief of staff is able to reform and get that wing of the administration out, I think that becomes a possibility, right? You have mm -hmm. you have a much less nationalistic and I think a much more realistic foreign policy, and then maybe you see that shift. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if if, if uh, Bannon stays, whether that's possible or not. Yeah, uh, it might not be. Well, yeah. He's a Nazi. He can't stay. Right. He, right? he says he's not a Nazi. Well, well nobody's going to believe that. <laughs> <laughs> not now. Um, <laughs> anything else on this, Bill, before we talk beers? No, okay. I mean I have a, we have I have several things we could talk about, but I know we need to move on for time. We'll save stuff for future episodes. All right, let's uh, let's let's chat about beers. Um, so I don't know, Nick, do you want to or Phil? Do you, did you do you want to start us off, Phil? Sure, I I just had one um, tonight uh, thus far, and uh, it was uh, Kona Brewing Company. Oh yeah. Um, have you had uh, uh, this? Is a big wave golden ale. Have mm -hmm. you had this before? Yeah, it's mm -hmm. good. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, I have been leaning more towards lagers and light ales lately. I, maybe it's just summer. 
Um, and I like this one. It was it was light, but it still had some heft to it. It had some flavor. It wasn't just watery. And yeah, it was good. I, I thinking about our you know untapped stuff. I'd probably give it four out of five stars. I liked it. Nice. Nice. Uh, Tom, do you want to review? Yeah, I have a good city brewing, which is Milwaukee. Uh, a mosaic pale. I thought it was very good. Uh, it's light. Um, I'll, I'll go to Untapped and call it a 3.75. I'm kind of <laughs> tough on. Uh, I, here's my way of doing Untapped, and I have 3,900 unique beers on there. Jesus. Um, I believe God Himself drinks 5.0s. So you move backwards. You move backwards from there. If God's not drinking it. You can't give it a five. Uh, it turns out there is a five at the table. The Stone Brewing. It's it's that good. Um, and then I, I'm not going to rate my own beer, needless to say. It's on untapped for you. Oh, good, to good, a politics good. Sorts. Mm. Um, but this is 10.5%, uh, the Baltic Porter is. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's, and I think deceptively so, yes? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, Nick and I also sh uh, split a uh, Mosaic Pale Ale. Uh, and I will say I'm, I'm biased because this is brewed, so it's on Farwell Avenue in Milwaukee. Nick, that was where that was my east side, man. That's that's where I, you know, that You're was going more than three point seven. I, I might just just because of the east side Milwaukee roots there. Uh, it had a nice little citrus thing, a drinkable, uh, drinkable yeah, beer. I enjoyed. I like Absolutely. it a lot. Yeah, it had kind of a yeah, a nice floraliness yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah. And then yeah, our first beer, Nick and I split a stone coffee milk stout. I'll let you start on that one, Nick. I, I mean, I'm I'm honestly not a huge fan of milk stouts in general, but stone is. So fucking good. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's got a it's got a nice. So I'll, I'll when we get to the next beer, I'll, I'll say it's it's got kind of a, a creamy sweetness to mm -hmm. it, um, which I, I leave it or take it or leave it kind of thing. Um, I, I, I'd probably give it a four. It was a, it was a, that's a really good beer. Very drinkable. Yeah. Um, yeah. All I right. feel like I should point out that I'm wearing a Stone Brewing Company T-shirt wow. as we do this podcast. Nice. Hey. And, nice. and you got a nice haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Phil. <laughs> All right, and so to Tom's beer, I, I can't believe that you said this was 10? Yeah. It, it, it's incredibly yeah, drinkable. That itself makes uh, a four. Yes, um, uh, it's crisp. I mean, this is, uh, so I, I'm enjoying this. I like that. So it kind of reminds me of the stone, but it doesn't have that that sweetness to it, which I like a lot better. It's, it's yeah, a good like point. you said, yes. it's much, it's crisper. And hold on. <laughs> oh, it just tastes good. <laughs> And the name. The stone's going to have lactose in it. That's the sweetness. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. And the Baltic Porter doesn't. Well, there it's you just go. Tons yeah. of malt. Mm -hmm. And so the official name is Putin Piss or? Piss on Putin. Piss on Putin. 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 <laughs> Makes it even better. <laughs> uh, All right. All right, Nick, time so, for speed round? Oh, wait, go ahead, Phil. Wait, wait, I have a question for Tom. So you said how many how many uh, unique beers on Untapped? Just about 3,900. And and. What, how many of those, what percentage of those have you given five stars? What percentage of them will God drink? 25. You've given 25, not 25%. You've given 25. No, 25 beers. We may have to check that list out. I would like so. to know what those are, yeah. All right, so we're going to move to speed round, and we're going to do five minutes on three issues relating to the Mueller investigation. Uh, I will briefly introduce the topic uh, and maybe have Tom lead off because he's our legal expert. Uh, and then the bell will go off. And when the bell goes off, we move on to the next question. All right, so our first question is, uh, so uh, in the last couple of weeks, Robert Mueller has impaneled a grand jury. Uh, and this, uh, this is a, a pretty significant thing. So, uh, Tom, how big of a deal is this? 
Oh, boy. Let me go back to what I said the last time I was here, and that is I have doubts about prosecuting a sitting president, uh, and I have doubts about firing uh, Mueller. Uh, so in that context, I think what I'd say is an attorney general is going to get an indictment from every grand jury that they work with. This is the way it works. Ham you, sandwich, we've right? We've all heard the ham sandwich <laughs> yes. line. Um, but what's interesting to me in this context is uh, this would be a first of its kind. While it's easy to indict, indicting a sitting president is a, a, a totally different thing. So while this is done secretly, uh, that is to say you don't know who's on the grand jury, uh, I'm guessing that there is very aggressive effort to find out because who doesn't want to be the person writing the book or being interviewed <laughs> because they were on the grand jury that for the first time in American history indicted a president, hmm. uh, if they do. Yeah. Um, and one doesn't even know if Mueller's going to ask for one, uh, an indictment of the president, because the, the, the list of targets, of course, is much broader than just Trump himself. Now, is it tr from what I'm, I've read that when Mueller does the grand jury, if he brings any of the Trump officials in, or if he brings Trump in himself, it's Trump, the grand jury, the prosecutor, and that's it. There's no lawyers. That's right. Well, the, well the, the grand jury, I'm sorry, the attorney general is an attorney. The Would, prosecutor is an attorney. What you want to say is there's no defense counsel. Okay, president. exactly, yes. Yeah. And, and that's not an insignificant distinction. That is, it is a witness interrogated by an attorney without benefit of counsel. And let's say, and this may not happen, but if Trump is brought before this grand jury and he engages in some of his less than truthful statements, he is open to perjury, right? I'd be shocked if Trump ever appears in front of a grand jury. That is to say, uh, we talked about the last time I was here, Trump pardoning himself. I think uh, it would take years before you could find a court uh, with adequate jurisdiction, if there is such a thing, who could compel him to go to a grand jury. So I think he'd refuse to go, uh, and I think he'd wait for the court system to sort out who's got authority to tell him to go. And in a universe where we've got three co-equal branches of government, I'm not sure he'd respect the Supreme Court telling him to go. But he's certainly not going to walk into a grand jury room. Well, I, maybe we should never say certainly with respect to this guy about yeah. anything. But I, I just I can't see that happening. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe I, you, I, I broke up for a second, so I, I didn't hear the very beginning of this. But um, and. From my reading, and, and I was wondering if you could sort of comment on this, my reading of this is that it, it's less about, it doesn't mean that there's any sort of indictment uh, imminent. It's more about convening a grand jury that gives you the power of subpoena and allows you to start questioning witnesses Absolutely like Paul right. Manafort and others. Absolutely so, right. So people shouldn't necessarily read too much into it at this point. I mean, it's a significant step, but it doesn't. this doesn't mean that people are about to start being hauled off to jail. That's totally right. It's a significant thing legally, but it, in this, this hyperventilating news cycle we have going in America, it's, it's a major event. I don't think it's a major event. Hmm. In the sense that so, an indictment is, is forthcoming, I don't think it is. That Trump is going to be asked to testify at any point in the near future, I don't think he is. Um, or that... Uh, meaningful documents are going to be requested. I don't sure. think they are. Mm -hmm. And where they are, he'll uh, simply assert executive privilege and wait for it to work its way through the courts, which, again, could take a very long time. Mm -hmm. it, it seems to me that it's a significant event 
for Paul Manafort. Yes. <laughs> and Michael it Flynn. Seemed, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Mike Flynn. Yeah, so I mean, it seems like this is, you. It, they're really starting to sort of close in on a few individuals. They're still a long ways away from closing in on Donald Trump or anyone, well, I, I shouldn't say anyone close to him because these are people who are close to him, but. Yeah. Uh, Listen, only one felony has uh, been overtly discovered here, and that was leaking Michael Flynn's name. Mm-hmm. That's a felony. Uh, oddly enough, no one seems interested in finding out who did that. Uh, <laughs> but I, this is a serious point, right? Uh, we're talking about a criminal grand jury that could indict a person and seek a prosecution. We know one felony was committed. One hopes that's being investigated in this context. Um, but, but I don't know. That's, uh, that's D-tier news. Uh, in this whole context. Do you uh-huh. think Trump will prevent others within the administration from growing, going in front of the grand jury? So you think it's unlikely that he would go? What about his son and others? Would they be? Would he be reluctant to let them go? I suspect he'd make the executive privilege argument, which is this umbrella claim that everything that uh, they know about a thing, uh, oh, I hear the ding, <laughs> <laughs> is off limits for public scrutiny. Speed runs Whether fun. that'll succeed on that, I don't know. All right, our second uh, Mueller question here is, okay, so in the uh, last couple of weeks, senators have introduced bipartisan bills uh, to block President Trump from firing Robert Mueller. Uh, now, what's interesting here is that under Justice Department regulations, the Attorney General can remove Mueller for misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflict of interest, or for other good cause, including violation of department policies, uh, which seems like it's a pretty high bar. Uh, but because it is a regulation rather than a statute, uh, it can be modified by the Trump administration. So is this something that, uh, maybe start with Tom, is this something, are there legs to this, right? Uh, is this something that uh, Trump should be worried about in terms of if he wants to get rid of the Mueller? Uh, my input last time was I don't think he can fire uh, this council. Um, as, as this debate has persisted, more and more thinking on both sides has emerged. Uh, There's certainly a compelling argument that because this is a regulatory appointment and not a statutory appointment, the president has the authority to do that. But I'm going to go back to a word Bill's used, and that's optics. I just can't imagine his presidency uh, uh, surviving firing Robert Mueller. Mm -hmm. I I just can't imagine it. Certainly a re-election bid, uh, and, and one assumes in his own mind he's Reelectable, um, I, I just can't see it happening. Yeah. And again, I think if he does fire, it triggers a protracted legal process uh, that that isn't easily resolved. Sure. So much of this is going to have to be decided by the Supreme Court. That is assuming some of these things happen. Um, at this point, everybody's predicting and guessing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it, it seems like this is playing out, or this issue of trying to pass legislation that solidifies Mueller's place, it seems to me that this falls in the optics side of things, right? Yes. This is sending a message that Mueller is important and we, the Congress, won't stand for his being firing, being fired. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, anything that they pass still has to go to the president for signature, right? So, I mean, even if they passed something that cemented Mueller, then it still has to be signed by Trump. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, right. so I mean, again, I, I, I think this is back to the question of like sending important signals. I think it's important that Congress sends signals that they won't tolerate the firing of Mueller. But it, it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of legs beyond that. Am I, am I misreading that? I mean, what do you think, Bill? 
well, there's or Tom, a either things. one. What? No, I mean, there's, there's the, I guess, Tom brought up the constitutionality of this, right? So Trump could have keep appealing this. Um, and, and it also, the other issue is that if it's about optics and not about the actual legality of it, Trump can, there are other ways that he can obstruct justice with this, right? I mean, so even even if that legislation is allowed to pass, right, well, Trump can can get in the way and, and slow things down. He still could uh, fire the acting attorney general. I mean, there's other things that he could do to make this much, much more complicated. Um, I think my sense of this is it really feels like optics. This is the Senate saying, we're not pleased that you're looking to do this. We're going to try to make it a bit more difficult. But if he's committed to doing so, um, right. I, I don't know if the Senate can stop him, at least in terms of how quickly this might move to the Supreme Court. And that I'm guessing that would drag, right? That would take time. Well, we're not waiting for the traditional route, you know, a circuit split yeah. or uh, a full venting, uh, ventilation of, which is one of the great <laughs> phrases in one of these cases working its way up there. Theoretically, the court could say uh, this is a matter of national urgency involving uh, a co-equal branch of government, and they take it straight away. Uh, in many ways, the court makes its own rules and uh, uh, effectively makes its own jurisdiction. And ordering the, pre let's just go back to a uh, uh, grand jury, ordering the sitting president of the United States of America to appear in front of a grand jury without defense counsel, with a prosecutor, uh, this, is, this is a question so novel, yeah. no one's answered it. So it seems to me the Supreme Court could essentially assert original jurisdiction over some of these kinds of questions. And, and grab it right away. Yes. Yeah. Um, I screwed up the bell on this one. <laughs> so. Oh, so I stopped. So, because Trump's a head of state, and, and the, the Supreme Court is the place where heads of state adjudicate questions in the United States of America. And I think what he'd say is, I don't want that at this point because it would expedite things, but theoretically the court could say, if, if the other side wants to treat you as the head of state and needs an answer on a question like this, that lower courts are clearly going to have, we're going to take it mm -hmm. in interlocutory appeal. Oh, there's so many fascinating Jumps potential legals. In. Yeah, yeah, right in. All right, our third uh, question on the Mueller investigation is that it broke this weekend that Mueller is asking or seeking to interview individuals within the White House, right? So, uh, and in particular, he's looking at Reince Priebus, uh, but also many other individuals. Uh, he wants to ask the White House about specific meetings, who attended those meetings, whether there are any notes, transcripts, or documents. Um, and apparently he wants to ask individuals about uh, President Trump's, de Trump's decision to fire uh, James Comey, all of this, right? So this raises the question of would the White House cooperate along this, and should they? Um, Phil, do you want to, I mean, maybe you want to start us off. There's the boxing bell. It's back. <laughs> <laughs> well, Priebus at the center of this is sort of a fascinating thing, right? Because you've got a, 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 although in public he hasn't appeared disgruntled, he has to be disgruntled behind the scenes, right? Yes. Um, and I imagine that some of the leaks that have come out might have come from him. Uh, Mike, I have a question for Tom, um, because, or maybe any of you, if you know the answer to this. So with something like executive privilege, I mean, it seems like the, you know, the answer as as these individuals surrounding Donald Trump start getting called into a uh, grand jury or to be testifying, um, the, the declaration of executive privilege is the sort of easy way out. Um, but is executive privilege 
binding? I mean, I know it's binding on the one side, meaning that the person asking. So if I'm the if I'm the prosecutor and I'm asking you stuff, and the president declares executive privilege, I you know that's you have a right to say I'm not going to answer. But is it binding on the person answering the question? So can Priebus basically say whatever he wants, even though the president is declaring executive privilege? Does that make sense? It does. And my understanding is that it is binding, at least in this sense. The president has the right to protect information produced uh, in meetings that involve uh, national security, uh, American politics, you know, that is to say his, his conduct of his office. Um, it would mean nothing if once he asserted it, people who had access to records or information could simply say, well, he can assert anything he likes, but I'm going to tell anyway. Uh, imagine that in a national security context. Uh, he asserts executive privilege, and somebody who knows something uh, deeply damaging, let's say, to the intelligence community says, well, I'm going to tell anyway. Uh, so my read would be that the executive privilege is binding on both sides. Does the content of the question matter? So let's say Mueller says, I just want to know who's at the meeting. Yeah. Uh, would, would he be able to use it in that circumstance to say, I can't even tell you who's at the meeting? Uh, 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 let me preface this yeah. by saying uh, <laughs> executive privilege is a slippery thing. And, and again, just like we were the last time we met, uh, so many of these questions have not been answered. Mm -hmm. uh, you, the president can't declare executive privilege over everything with respect to him. So we talk, for example, about his financial records, and uh, that is his private business financial records. I'd make the argument that those are not subject to executive privilege, and that if any part of this investigation is looking into allegations, let's say, of fraud or uh, uh, the emoluments clause or something like that, th these are not executive privilege questions. What they say in the Oval Office about how to manage relations with a foreign power, Russia, and therefore everything that relates to that conversation, to come back to your question about content, it seems to me falls under the umbrella of executive privilege. Interesting. Uh, but again, here's the fascinating thing. What happens when Mueller says, I want the books? Right. Call your accounting firm and tell them, I want 10 years worth of records from uh, Trump Tower. Oh, I know the DC one just opened, but let, 10, 10 years of Trump records. Yeah. It's uh, anybody's guess. Well, and to Phil's larger issue of optics, right? So Ty Cobb, the president's new attorney, has been arguing that we're going to fully cooperate with this and hasn't pushed back. But this may be the issue where they start to push back. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Because uh, this, this could get into trouble if you have Priebus or you – I mean, I guess uh, Manafort and Flynn wouldn't be protected in that way. But this – yeah. Um, Phil, you look like you got something on your head. Ty, Ty Cobb's a hell of a baseball player. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting. Yes. But imagine that Trump says conversations with Paul Manafort that may have involved Russian citizens uh, are covered by the executive privilege because I am the head of uh, our foreign policy. And uh, foreign policy concerns dictate that I uh, assert the executive privilege so that we don't put ourselves at odds with a foreign power. I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking this, uh, I, I, this is not... Uh, a meaningless argument, no, is it? Uh, and so, since a lot of the events around or that are being investigated, at least some of the events that are being investigated, happened before Trump was president. Yeah. yeah can yeah. can can is there? Does he have any? But but maybe related to his presidency, is that one of those sort of gray questions that's not necessarily been answered? Like, can he extend executive privilege to things that happened before he was president, but that were 
working towards establishing, you know, transition or whatever? I, I don't want to monopolize. I'm going to say to that question, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I just simply truly don't know. The, I, the, I think the answer is he cannot assert executive privilege over events or information that uh, took place before he was the executive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a there, perfect there, answer. <laughs> there are obviously going to be some fascinating court cases that happen as a result of this, I imagine. If I have a friend who talks to me about his life and later hires me as his attorney, he can't claim the attorney-client privilege, and this is exactly akin to that, uh, over conversations that occurred before we had an attorney-client relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think we treat this privilege the same way. Privilege is a pretty well-navigated area of mm -hmm. law executive privilege, and particularly under these circumstances, less so. And if you're Donald Trump in this moment, even though he has all this privilege, he's probably not pleased, right? So in the last week, they've raided or they did a, they executed a search warrant on Paul Manafort's house, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's a big deal, right? Yeah, and so all of the, he's, he's obviously getting nervous about what's going on here. All right, time to jump to uh, preview some Supreme Court cases coming up. Uh, our first one we're going to talk about is the, the cell phone case. And, and maybe, Tom, I'll turn to you to start and do yeah. a brief introduction of, of what we're talking about here. This is, uh, I think, one of the handful of cases this term that could be uh, groundbreakers. Uh, this is the Carpenter case. It involves a question of whether or not cell phone tower location information uh, is protected by the Fourth Amendment. Carpenter is a career criminal. Ironically, in this particular case, uh, the information that was gained uh, was to uh, convict him of, get ready for this, stealing cell phones. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Just, it's the most That's perfect thing in the good. history of the world. Uh, he has 127 days of cell tower data uh, that are given uh, to law enforcement uh, pursuant to subpoena. Um, they place him at or around nine places uh, at the right time, the right day uh, of these thefts, and based largely on this evidence, he is convicted. You might imagine that he appeals and takes the position that, uh, without a warrant, that information shouldn't be available. Uh, it's obtained under uh, a statute, um, though it is unclear whether the statute itself is constitutional, if it provides uh, a sort of route around the Fourth Amendment. Um, when Carpenter did this, a cell phone had roughly in a day 100 data points. That is, it communicated with a cell tower about 100 times a day during the period of time in question. Now it's every seven seconds. So the ability to locate wow. you based on where your cell phone is is just about as accurate as GPS. Uh, and this is part of the uh, briefing that's coming to the courts. Um, the central question in this case is, does the third party doctrine protect the government. The third party doctrine just means when you relinquish information to a third party, you lose the right to assert uh, that it is private information. But of course, that doctrine pre-exists technology. Uh, really all so, technology, but it certainly pre-exists the cell phone. Can I, can yeah, I interrupt for just please, a second? Please, so please. Does, does that mean that once, like when you sign up for a cell phone plan, the cell phone company is the third party and you have you have agreed to give them your location information and so it's no longer private? What, how does that interpret it? Essentially, it, it means okay. that when you use your cell phone uh, and it pings towers and that produces data that are uh, uh, retained by the cell company, uh, I want to say in this case it's Verizon, 
that that third party information is not a thing over which you have, or relative to which you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But I just, let's pause here. <laughs> the, the case law leading up to this is, it seems to me, on a trajectory where the Supreme Court is going to say you have to have a warrant to get this information. California case called Riley says that you cannot search a cell phone incident to an arrest because there's no exigent circumstances. Uh, the court took on, it's been almost 10 years now, a fascinating case involving police setting up UV cameras across the street from a house they thought was being used to grow marijuana. And what it did essentially was to look for the heat signature of the lamps that would be used. Court said that's clearly a search because it is using technology to amplify your ability to observe. Oh, um, this seems consistent with that, right? Yes. And then let's add the fairly more recent case, Jones, the GPS case, where the FBI puts on the bottom of a car a GPS device. There the warrant was expired rather than never issued. Uh, but the position the government taken uh, took was we didn't need a warrant anyway uh, because we were just doing the same thing we could have done had we had FBI agents follow him. Uh, and in that case, in a Scalia opinion, the decision was you've A, trespassed on his property, his car, and B, it amounts to a search when you use this for 24-7 tracking information. So I'm, uh, I, my, I'll put my cards on the table. The court ought absolutely to rule that your cell phone in its entirety ought to be covered by the Fourth Amendment. Where it is, where you are, what's on it, what you use it for, uh, this is what the Fourth Amendment was, was written to do, I think. Now, the Trump administration has come down on the opposite side of that, right? Uh, along with law enforcement. Right, right, exactly, yes. Well, we regularly yeah. hear him trumpeting <laughs> yes, from the right. stage, yes. yes? You know who so, I think the key in this case is going to be, interestingly enough? Um, Kennedy's the swing votes, uh, vote so often, but Justice Sotomayor has been very aggressive relative to criminal case uh, criminal cases and criminal uh, uh, defendant rights. And I could see her writing, uh, I hope, maybe even a majority opinion that says, uh, this is an abuse of law enforcement power to simply call Verizon and say, it's 127 days worth of data they got about this guy. Hmm. To pretend this is something that the average citizen would say they think government should be able to just simply call up and ask for, I think uh, defies reason. Nick, you so, gotta you gotta be totally on board with this, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's, so, it's go ahead, Phil. <laughs> no, I just one quick clarify. I didn't mean to cut you off, Nick. But one quick clarify: the, the question is only, it's not about whether law enforcement have, has access to it. It's about whether or not law enforcement has to obtain a warrant to have access to it. Is that oh, right? right? Or is yeah, it about, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, okay. I should, the entire thing turns on: do they have to get a warrant to ask for this information? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. and, and if they do, then they have to demonstrate probable cause. And in the Carpenter right. case, they probably could have. That's the irony of it. Um, but but they're you just using a federal statute where they're entitled to ask for this. There's hundreds of thousands of these requests a year. I want to say in 2016, there were 127,000 requests of cell phone companies uh, for cell location data. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a minute. It's, uh, this is enormous. Mm -hmm. And terrifying. Well, yeah. Maybe I, everybody except Nick. I don't know. No, <laughs> no Nick is terrified. No, I'm oh, absolutely right. terrified. <laughs> and you, I mean, most people work under the assumption that either that data isn't accessible most of the time or, you know, naively turn their location services off or something. Well, they're not tracking me anyways now, so that doesn't really matter. But, um, I, and, and I, 
I, I mean, for me, the fact that something of like this doesn't get more play in the media, and maybe it's you know the Nazis or um, nuclear war that's kind of stopping that, is is shocking because it's such a, at least for me, it seems like such a blatant disregard for right to privacy and and civil rights in general. It's it's just crazy. And but again, you, re you return to the third party doctrine. He doesn't control this uh, set of information. And uh, what the court's going to have to say is this modern technology presents an entirely different kind of thing than we fashioned the third party doctrine to address. Mm -hmm. I, th I think they're going to. I think they should. Now, think about what happens if they don't. Anybody here wear a Fitbit? No. Yes. Okay. okay, so your Fitbit your Fitbit blasts up to the cloud and you may even use an app with it that tells you whether or not you're getting more healthy and sleeping enough and eating well. If Carpenter loses, you don't, because you've given that to a third party, have any right to the information relative to your health. Right. Uh, there's a recent case in California involving a guy convicted based largely on his pacemaker. That is, he claimed at the time his house was burning down, uh, he was running out the door and trying to get away. Uh, by subpoena, they get his pacemaker data and find out that his heart rate isn't at all elevated, i.e., he knew the fire was happening, left earlier, and was totally relaxed as his house burned down. Uh, I mean, these are th th these seem like oh, uh, right fascinating. fascinating. But but the, if Carpenter loses, so does everybody who says the information my Fitbit produces and sends back to an app. Uh, so now the police are asking for that. Amazon Echo and Amazon Dot, mm -hmm. yeah. third party. Is there a difference? Email, third party. Well, that's I was wondering about that. So we're talking about law enforcement having access to this material. Would other parties also, if if this court case goes a certain way, no. would, could they? They couldn't. It was just. Uh, you all know the Supreme Court answers only the question in front of them. Yeah. And here, that's whether or not a Fourth Amendment warrant is required, okay. or it is not because the third-party doctrine's in play. No, but if law enforcement can gain access to it from a legal perspective, <clears throat> you can be sure as shit that people are going to be able to gather that information. Fitbit already knows whether Phil's eating too much pizza, or, or whether, <laughs> oh, he's, right, running, right, or whether he's running off it enough, or getting enough sleep at night. That's a little scary. Yeah. To, to Nick's point, this but he, had, <laughs> he, he knowingly accepted those terms of service. Not no. Well, he accepted, but you maybe not knowingly, right? Well, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe Phil didn't read the terms of service. No one ever does. Right. But I'm guessing that he knew when he put the Fitbit on, third parties could theoretically get that information. And by I, third party, I, I, I mean Fitbit. I don't right, mean right, Bill Mock. Right. Right. He wants to check on whether his friend is healthy. Right. right? right. Uh, you've but given it away to somebody you don't control. Mm -hmm. That's the third party doctor. Do you, do you think there is that much awareness of that, though? I would no. I would speculate the majority of people who put a Fitbit on don't think anything about that. They think the data is on my phone. They're not thinking about Fitbit having that data. And I think that's going to be one of the central questions in this case. That is, people knew when they picked up, let's say, a, your, your walkie-talkie when you're a kid in the backyard and you're hearing other people's voices on it, man, maybe somebody else can hear me. But everybody also knew when they picked up a landline phone the only person hearing them was the one on the other side of the line. I always heard those clicks. I assume people were listening to my conversations. <laughs> and, and the answer the answer is yes, no, and no to too, too much pizza, not running. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
So our final uh, Supreme Court preview case is coming out of Wisconsin, so my home state, and issues of gerrymandering. And to be honest, like I think the cell phone case is fascinating. I think in terms of long-term implications, this gerrymandering case is really, really big. So I don't know. Tom, do you mind giving a quick preview? I, I don't. I feel like I'm doing too much talking. No, this is, this is, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, these to me, you know, the, the, wedding, bake, the wedding cake is, is yeah. on the agenda. These are the two that I think change American culture. If the court says your phone has, uh, you don't have an expectation of privacy to where you are when you're using your phone, that ought to change. Then people will know. Feel I guess it'd be you know kind of the end. They'll know and they'll change their uh, habits. The the other big one is this gerrymandering case. It's the Gill case out of Wisconsin. It involves partisan, not race gerrymandering, and that's a really important dimension in this case. Uh, the court has repeatedly said and uh, uh, pretty clearly they don't like partisan political gerrymandering. But what they've also said is they can't figure out a test to decide when it's being done to a degree that exceeds uh, propriety. Uh, everybody knows it's done. And in fact, one of the arguments made by those that want to preserve gerrymandering is precisely that the framers did it. And if they did it and knew it was done, they could have done something to prevent it if they wished to. Uh, this is a different age. So what this case does uh, is it presents the court not just with the possibility of getting in, but getting out. That is to say, they've got a test. Uh, it is, uh, I alluded to this very quickly when I was last here, the work of two uh, political science mathematician sorts. <laughs> it turns on something called the efficiency gap. And essentially what they're arguing is that one ought to look at legislative districts, count the number of votes that are wasted, and determine if there are enough of them wasted that they have been gerrymandered into meaninglessness. Wasted votes are those cast beyond the number needed by the candidate who won, and all of those cast for the candidate who lost. And this grows out of the, uh, yeah, the more, uh, to go a little further on gerrymandering, the crack and pack approach to districting. That is, uh, uh, you pack some districts with an inordinate number of a particular voting pattern so that you can concentrate them into one candidate who might get 90% of the vote, and then the rest of them you crack among a lot of other districts where they won't have any chance of prevailing. So what the efficiency gap pretends to do, I should say pretends, uh, tries to do, is articulate a clear standard. So when you, when you add up all the votes, divide them into the total votes cast, their argument is that if 8% or more are wasted, you have a district that ought to be reviewed judicially. Not necessarily changed, but is subject to judicial review. And it should be pointed out that this is not, both parties do this, right? Uh, and this is something that in some ways there's bipartisan agreement that we should do this, right? <laughs> there's bipartisan political agreement right, that we should right. do it. All of us sitting out here, uh, we're sitting in a state, uh, Phil isn't, but, but the three of us are sitting in a state where three quarters of all public elections are unopposed. Uh, I mean, this is, I frankly, I'd like to see that added to the math. I mean, one of the ways to decide if you've got gerrymandering is, are there contested elections? That's what the efficiency gap is about. Mm -hmm. But another way of determining that is, is there a person who is running consistently unopposed? Answer, there is. And answer, that's because they've gerrymandered themselves into districts where there's no point running. I live in one, in mm -hmm. Oak Park. I have terrible legislators. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're horrifying. <laughs> 
legitimate opposition is like a, a standard criteria for judging democracy around the right. world, right? right? When we look at other countries, whether or not, and so it's weird that we have so many. Uh, the other thing that from like an international perspective, most countries, most democracies don't allow district drawing mm -hmm. to happen at the hands of political players, right? right. So the, it, the way we do it here is that state legislatures, for the most part, who who control, you know, if the Republicans win office, they get to draw the, at the right time, they get to draw districts. And that I census. think we've got we've gotten yeah we've gotten used to that in the u.s but from a like a broader perspective most other countries see that as insane right like you would want what you want is some sort of either bipartisan or non-political some sort of uh, you know system for for creating it, it benefits everyone if you have a competitive um sensible system i mean there, there has to be some way of drawing these lines right you can't there's no like obvious natural way to do it and wisconsin but, yeah. Wisconsin is so, for me, beyond the pale in terms of gerrymandering. This is like this is the case where you say it certainly is happening. For me, I want to know if the court says you've finally gotten too far. What does that look like then? Because for me, I mean, to, to echo Phil's point here, I would love to see more competitive districts. I, I, I think that might help the democracy as a whole to come back and sure. say we're not going to stack these this is not we're not going to keep pushing people to the to the extremes we're going to have real political discourse here so for me i'm tremendously excited about this case in terms of the potential although i don't know how the court addresses that it says like this is What's how we move forward mm -hmm. right exactly right. yeah i i have no, no go ahead please <laughs> okay. i'm trying to formulate <laughs> one thought and i can't right now <laughs> Well, the court ruled recently in, in an Arizona case that nonpartisan uh, district drawing commissions are constitutional. In other words, that that delegation of power from legislature to unelected people is not illegal. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to give a caveat about those, but say that that might be one of the remedies. That is, that a state says, look, it's not partisan if a nonpartisan commission produced it. Uh, the problem is that there's some research on these that suggests that uh, they're not drawing maps that are dramatically more right. uh, fair yeah. uh, than legislators are. Um, I'm, I sort of, uh, here's one possibility, uh, that we let the math do it. That is to say, and I think that's the point to this case, if the standard is an efficiency gap, that you almost do this by computer. Uh, maybe not even almost. You do do it by computer. That is, you put people in a position where the maps are drawn by uh, a formula or an algorithm that looks for the fewest places where there's an efficiency gap at 8% or greater. And the only way to meet the Supreme Court's test would be to show, let's just say Illinois, that uh, some percentage of our legislative districts, uh, and I would hope it's a high number, let's yeah. say 90%, sure. have an efficiency gap that's lower than 8%. Mm -hmm then you have to move yeah who would be in charge of those algorithms though well uh, Google but the beautiful if they adopted a test that said 8% the threshold thereafter judges can get involved and compel a redraw if you own the algorithm and you just kept doing what legislators have been doing all the way along uh, you'd continually be redrawing your maps, presumably. The key to this case is, under what circumstances can a judicial review of a map take place at all? 
right? Because what they've said is we don't know how to get in on that because we don't have a test. Mm -hmm. And no one's given us a test. And what's so exciting about this case is, even if it's not a perfect test, it's a first foray into the court with one that says, let's not just say political gerrymandering's bad, let's talk about a cure. You know, it's sort of like yes. Brown versus Board of Ed, yes. right? We all hate segregation, but it took two decisions right. to get to a point where we had a busing situation, a scheme and, uh, and, and undid it. And right? the, the ripple effect so, of this decision, like you said, it's not one decision. This starts a train that ultimately plays out after multiple cases. Yeah. So, so just to clarify, because I haven't read much about this case, that, what is the is the specific question about is, is Wisconsin trying this approach that you're describing? No, the no, no, is no they're trying that, gerrymandering, that, Phil. They, they are <laughs> they have gerrymandered Republicans into uh, the very same position Democrats have done in Illinois. This so, is a bipartisan uh, uh, brutalizing of the electorate. So who is bringing the case then? A group of Wisconsin voters disenfranchised by, they argue, gerrymandering. Hmm, okay. Here's, I'll just throw one more interesting twist uh, to this case, and it's the First Amendment twist. Uh, the Supreme Court has held for many, many years uh, that voting is a form of expressive association and that there's a First Amendment dimension to voting. Uh, and one of the themes in this case that's been underbriefed but might come up in oral argument or even in some of the amicus briefs is that gerrymandering violates the First Amendment right to expressive association huh. because you are uh, pushed into a place where you can't produce consensus about your position. Interesting. Now, I real, yeah, what I mean by that, I see Phil's, Phil screwing up his face and he's right to do that <laughs> because the, one of the criticisms of the efficiency gap is it assumes people never change their mind and we just lived through an election where people probably pretty clearly did and that people always vote the party line, right? So uh, if they don't, and this is gonna be the argument that's made by uh, the Wisconsin Republicans, look, people can change their mind. People are open to argument. And that's why I'm so hot on, if it's an unopposed election, ask hard questions about that district. It, oh, How about that's that? good timing, oh, that's good timing. <laughs> it, oh. it, it seems like the argument, I'm gonna talk for the a second. The bell rang, Phil. Up. I know, I don't care. <laughs> talk. It seems like the argument that my party always loses is—it uh, seems like that's a leap to say that. That I mean, uh, in a two-party system, it, I can see people claiming that, you know, it's rigged so the other party always wins, and therefore my freedom of speech has been. But if I'm a, you know, if I'm a Nazi or a socialist or something else, like it's hard to argue that my a freedom libertarian, of speech. right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> a libertarian. A libertarian. But this is this is why I think part of the formula has to address elections that are persistently unopposed. A district that doesn't produce two candidates in a meaningful election isn't democracy. And, and fundamentally, what we need is a test that produces districts that do that. Mm -hmm. oh, this, is, I'm ex this is a great case. I'm excited about this. <laughs> All right, Nick, the, the we went over. <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. You good? Yeah, we, we've gone long, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> you, entered, you allowed us to go long, Nick. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, it was good. Yeah. It was, it was good. I, I um... Yeah, I, I mean, any any closing thoughts on anything? Well, let no? us thank Tom for coming yeah, back again. Absolutely. Hope you come thank back you in the future. Much. This is uh, fantastic. This is a lot of fun. Such a great thing. Yeah. This this is what didn't happen in Charlottesville. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I, I am not like point. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have reason to believe I'm not like Phil. Uh, I'm probably not like Nick. But but here's 
this is the kind okay. of conversation we ought to be having. Yes, agreed. Right? This is part of what we want to do, is we want to have these conversations and, and show that it can be done in an engaging way. Yeah. And uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, want to have, we want to have these conversations so that I convince you losers that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect place to end right there. Phil, you're right. And, and can we just remember, here's the perfect place to end. Only one person today said he was thankful for Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even get to use my thing. Illinois Nazis. <laughs> I hate Illinois Nazis. I'll be using that more. Oh. Um, anything else, guys? No, this was fun. Um, it's great. Yeah, again, if, uh, if you like what you hear, um, like us and review us on iTunes. That helps us um, keep the lights on here and, and get more followers. Uh, Facebook, Twitter. Um, what else am I missing? Um, untapped. Untapped. The, the email, uh, the barstoolpolitics email. at yahoo.com. Yes. Um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll do it again next week. Cheers, guys. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers.